do something a little bit different than maybe our typical diet um, of God's Word, although we will hear from God's Word today, those ancient truths that will last throughout eternity that we just sang. I hope those words are ringing uh, in your heart as well as coming off your, your lips. Well, as you turn there, uh, I mentioned in the welcome that this morning is, uh, I, I likened Reformation Day to the hallmark holiday of the Christian Protestant tradition. We, we create holidays and, and we celebrate them, uh, but not to get your money. Uh, we, uh, we, we do so to remember uh, the cherished truths that have been handed down to us. And on uh, this, what we would think of as Halloween, October 31st, will actually mark the 502nd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, where God, in His sweet mercy and His kindness, unleashed, unshackled, if you would, the gospel of justification by faith throughout Europe, and by raising up a generation, a new generation of of preachers and church planters and, and churches that sprung up. I think we're seeing something like that happening again in our day. And the battle cry of that resurgence, if you will, the battle cry of the saints who were coming out of such great darkness was what we uh, uh, commonly call the, the five solas. That's what's here up on uh, behind me. They're all in Latin, but I'll, I'll give it to you in English. How about that? Um, the five solas emphasize the commitments that were recovered in the Reformation, namely that the forgiveness of sins, the justification of sinners is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based in the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That was the hallmark of the Reformation. And it's been the hallmark of, of God's people throughout the centuries, but this was a particular commitment that rose up in light of heresy to reclaim the truths of Scripture. And so like the people of God of old, think of Israel in Psalm 78. It is good for us to remember our heritage. It's good. Good so that we can remember the good things that, that our forefathers brought us, but also good so that we do not do exactly what they did. But we can reflect on history and see God's hand moving through His people. And so last year... I kind of started what I hope to be a little bit of a tradition of Oak Park. Uh, I shared the story of the Protestant Reformation through the lens and story and life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther may be the one most familiar to many of you who nailed the, his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517. Well, this morning I want to, want to do the same thing, but just through a different lens, the lens of the life of John Calvin. See, next to Luther, John Calvin was the most influential leader in the Protestant Reformation. Now, certainly there were others. Calvin actually represents a second generation of the Reformation, but there were others such as, uh, you may not know these names, you, you, you may. There were others such as Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland. God was doing a work through that man in, in, in Switzerland. Thomas Cramner and Lady Jane Grey in England. Think of John Knox in Scotland, and I actually hope in the years to come to do what I'm doing today through those names. So there's a little tease for the next five, six years. Um, 
That series is, is kind of has lots of intervals, if you will. But all these people were used by God. I and mean, if, if you're unfamiliar with this history, that, that uh, uh, library highlight that's in the window, there's a great book on the Reformation. Uh, it's a red book by Michael Reeves. The title's escaping me right now. But grab it, and it's a great summary, a real accessible summary that you can learn about what happened, that we didn't just come out of nowhere. We came from someplace. But with all these people, Luther included, None had the widespread influence that John Calvin did. Through Calvin's powerful preaching and teaching, his prolific publishing, and his commitment to educate, he helped spread the gospel throughout France, Switzerland, and the rest of Europe. He was influential. God used him for that purpose. In fact, the reform movement that he led has come all the way to us through the Puritans. Now, when we, I was growing up, we called them pilgrims. And their kids put on the funny hats and all that. Well, these were, lack of a better term, Calvinists coming over who were influenced many years later. And so this is even our heritage as Southern Baptists. Whether we embrace it all, which we don't, but just to realize that is the historical line and we'd keep going back. But Calvin was a juggernaut. He was a, a man used by the Lord for a season to, to really propagate the gospel throughout Europe. Now, I know some of you were probably rather nervous when you saw the title of the sermon today, John Calvin. Uh, what in the world is he going to do? Because Calvin's name sparks a wealth of emotion among people. He, his name sparked great comfort, controversy during his lifetime, and it still does, even today. But my aim isn't so much to defend the man, but for us to see how God used him despite his flaws which should be good news to us because all of us are flawed. And we're going to see, even though the best of men are men at best, God chooses to use sinful human beings to accomplish His purposes. He doesn't bless our sinful actions, but despite them, He does His work through them. And that is hope for us as a church today, now 502 years later, who are carrying the baton of the Scriptures of justification by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. That is the message by which God blesses. And so we're going to see this done through the life of John Calvin. Calvin was a man who was deeply committed to teaching and preaching God's Word so that God's people would be gripped by God's glory. That was his aim. That's really the aim of every good preacher, that they would teach and preach the Scriptures so that the God's people would behold God's glory and be gripped by it. And we're going to see what impact that had. Lit a flame among people, and the gospel spread as the Word was preached. Now, this goal is expressed in the preface of his little book entitled The Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. That's in the library highlight as well. A lot of the books I mentioned are going to be there. But here, I've got the quote up on the screen. This is his preface and his prayer for all who would read this tiny little book on what it means to follow Christ. He prays, Almighty God and Father, grant unto us, because we have to go through much strife on this earth, the strength of your Holy Spirit, in order that we may courageously go through the fire and through the water, and that we may put ourselves so under your rule that we may go to meet death in full confidence of your assistance and without fear. Grant us also that we may bear all hatred 
and enmity of mankind until we have gained the last victory, that we may at last come to that blessed rest which your only begotten Son has acquired for us through his blood. Amen. What a prayer. Your prayers, my prayers, exude such gospel truth in them. That's what he wanted for those who would be under his ministry. Calvin's ministry in Geneva, Switzerland, was very much, or could very much be expressed in the words of Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is kind of the anchor point that I want us to come to. And this isn't going to be a traditional exposition where I explain the passage, but just the thrust of this passage illustrated through the life of John Calvin. This is what Paul said, and, and I think Calvin would have said something very similar. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty, lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Calvin understood that faith in Christ comes through preaching Christ. Preaching Christ and Him crucified. And Christ and Him crucified is preached when we preach the Word of Christ. And there really was nothing um, spectacular about that ministry. There's, frankly, people, nothing much spectacular going on here this morning either. You're listening to some guy talk about a guy who's 500 years dead, who preached a book that was 2,000 years old. This isn't the best way to grow a crowd. And yet, in God in His wisdom seed saw fit through the foolish medium and message of the cross to save those who would believe. So that your, your salvation would not be, oh, well, it's because of this or that that's going on at that church or, or, or that great leader or that great inspiration that's going on. No, that the only explanation would be that they've experienced the power of God. And that's something that I think that many have forgotten that maybe we've clouded the gospel with all our hoopla. And there are other explanations for why people go to church. But Paul, and, and his illustrated in the life of Calvin, understood that I didn't want your faith, I don't want your faith to rest in my wisdom. I want your faith to rest in the wisdom of God. And so by looking at his life and ministry, here's what I want this morning. I want to encourage us I want you to just listen like a testimony, if you would. A testimony of what God has done through the life of a sinner for his own glory. And that this testimony, this life, this story of God's grace would be an encouragement to you to greater faithfulness and commitment to his word. You say, I want to be committed to God's word like this man was committed to the giftings and abilities that God has given us. Why? So that we'd be gripped by the glory of God. That we'd be gripped by the glory of God alone. And so to do this, I've kind of organized the, this sermon-esque time around three points. Calvin's conversion, Calvin's preparation, and Calvin's ministry. 
Let's think about Calvin's conversion. We actually don't know much about his personal life and his upbringing. Um, because, and, the, and frankly, this is because he didn't talk much about himself. Um, this is uh, vastly different than our day and age. We, we love to talk about ourselves, but Calvin actually didn't ever talk about himself. And rarely, if he did, it was only his testimony to the glory of God. So we don't know much about his upbringing, but um, what we do know is that uh, he was a bashful man, socially awkward, introverted, who would be pleased to be left alone for the rest of his life to be uh, cuddle up with his books. That's what he wanted to do. And yet we're going to see, as one uh, uh, mentor in his life said, you were Jonah fleeing the, the calling of God and pushed him back into the ministry. We're going to see God had other plans for him. God was going to uproot Calvin and use him for his own glory. He's going to uproot him from his earthly comforts and his own pursuits for God's kingdom purposes. And really, you could say this is an illustration of what Jesus said uh, last Sunday as we looked at his word and counting the cost. Where I'm going, there is nowhere to lay my head. And following Christ would be costly for Calvin. Calvin was born in 1509 in northern France, Noyon. And he, like other French boys, grew up Catholic. But his family was not a nominal Catholic family. In fact, they were rarely involved. His dad was the assistant uh, to the bishop uh, in, in, in France. So he was, he was of fair significance, and Calvin was a man of, of great means. He, he was a very privileged person. In most of his life, he, he used those contexts to make much use for the gospel. And so his father was very involved in the church. And so when Calvin was 12, he sent him away to Paris to go to university, and guess what? To study to become a priest. So in those days, you go to college when you're 12. This wasn't because they were so smart, although Calvin was. That's just what you did. If you were going to have a life and you had means, hey, you're 12, you're, you're an adult by now, let's go. And so you went off to university. In his case, he went to Paris to study to be a priest. Yet, yet five years later, so he's, he's five years, he's 17, and for a reason not entirely known, his father... Um, had a falling out with the bishop, and subsequently Calvin left the priesthood, or at least pursuing it, to move to the University of Orleans where he pursued classical studies in pursuit of a law degree. Now, if you're familiar with Luther's story, this is the exact inverse of his life. His father sent him to become a lawyer, and he dropped out of law school to become a priest. Calvin goes to become a priest and drops out of priesthood to become a lawyer. It's very interesting that God saved them both in, in different means, in different ways. So five years later, he's now studying classics and being trained uh, for study. And it's in the classics, it's as he gets away from Bible, actually, that he actually comes to faith in Christ as he gets out of the, the system of the Roman Catholic Church. And so during these pursuits of his life, as an early age, uh, even at the priesthood, he was given a, a, a really rigorous regimen by which he would get up early in the morning, study late into the night, and then he would get up early and do it all over again. This discipline carried his whole life, and, and as we'll learn, had a terrible cost on his own health. And he often only ate one meager meal a day. But it was during this time that while he was studying in Orleans that he, he, must, he, he presumably came in contact with some Lutherans. He'd come in contact with Martin Luther's writings. 
And Calvin says this about his introduction and conversion to the gospel. I have this all up on the screen. At first, now he's hearing the gospel for the first time. And first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extracted from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Meaning, I was so hardened, even at an early stage of 17. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less passion. I was quite surprised to find that before a year had elapsed, all who had any desire after purer doctrine were continually coming to me to learn, although I myself was yet but a mere novice. Here Calvin describes the power of the gospel. It's like, my heart was hardened to the truths. I was blinded by error, but God suddenly converted me. He, he changed my heart and hardened my, my mind and brought me to a teachable frame. Now, he's writing this, actually, in the, the preface to his Psalms commentary, reflecting on what has occurred. He, he knows his experience, but now he has the theological uh, wherewithal to explain what happened. And he gives glory to God that he's been born again. You, this, is, this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus. You must be born again. That's what he's talking about. By a suddenness. What was it that, that at one point I was hardened to these truths, but that at another point that my heart was willingly accepting them? Maybe that describes how you came to faith in Christ. You had heard the gospel over and over again, and you were hardened, disillusioned. You didn't give a rip about it. But then one time, you believed. Calvin says that was his experience. Not only that, but he was now inflamed with new desires, new passions, new, new, new pursuits. He said, I didn't altogether give up my, my pursuit of law and classical studies, but, but I wanted to pursue the things of God. And I was totally inflamed and impassioned by them. And so with every true encounter with Christ, there is a change of our heart's desires. When we come to faith in Christ, there's, there's a sense in which I want Christ now. I didn't want Him before. Now I want Him. I want His Word. And that's what Calvin begins to describe. This is exactly what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, when we're born again, we're like newborn infants who long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that by it we may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you find His Word like the, the, the long, do you long for it like a baby longs for the milk of his mother? That's how the Scripture describes what happens to the believer, that they want the words of God. They find their life in them. With Peter, they say, Jesus, for who should we go? Or where should we go? For you and you alone have the words of eternal life. And so this is what had happened in Calvin's life. Calvin had, and so had this conversion, and, and so now he's committed to study God's Word for the rest of his life. And this study was preparing him not only for an eternal weight of glory, but for the ministry that God would have him. And so we consider Calvin's preparation. By, by 1528, two years after his conversion, 
persecution began to spread in France. And this is due to a couple of incidents that are separate from Calvin, but just this is the world in which he lived in. Uh, the Lutherans bore kind of a little bit of the aggressiveness of Martin Luther, if you know anything about him. And so they got a little carried away in their evangelistic zeal. And so, first of all, some Lutherans had vandalized a statue of the Virgin Mary. Uh, and so this is in Paris. This is a, a big monument. And, and so the Pope hears about this. And he writes to King Francis I, and he, he says this, quote, that he needs to stamp out the Lutheran heresy and other sects infesting this kingdom. So at this time, the Roman Catholic Church still has power over Europe. And he's given direct orders to the King of France, you need to stamp out this movement. The second incident was known as the Placard Affair. It was some few years later, but, but it's in this same time where, where zealous students began posting posters. They were large tracts all over Paris, and somehow, and this takes bold courage, they managed to put one on the bedchamber door of King Francis. <laughs> Just taunting. Uh, and I'm sure these were 20, 17 to 20-year-olds who were out there doing this, you know, serving the Lord with all zeal. Well, this had a, a pretty heavy cost because immediately this resulted in nine executions. Oh, you think that's funny. And then later, as it continued, another 11, and they were paraded through the town on fire. Well, Calvin was not a part of this aggressive movement. He even actually spoke out against it, encouraging uh, those who would partake that these aren't the tactics that would be most persuasive. He was nonetheless associated with the theology and the same gospel that they were promoting. In fact, a year before the placard affair, Calvin's good friend, Nicholas Kopp, gave an address at the university on All Saints Day on, on October 31st. And in that address, All Saints Day, Kopp didn't mention the saints. No, what he addressed the university with was the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he gave the gospel. And this public address forced Cop to flee for his life. And Cop was one of Calvin's dear friends. And some historians suggest that, that actually Calvin's the one who wrote the address. Cop just is the one who had the position and could deliver it. Regardless of this point, Calvin's association to the Protestant movement was well uh, known, and this quickly made his name to be blacklisted, where at one point the authorities entered into his dorm room at the university looking to find him, and as the story goes, he, rest, he, he got escaped out the window just in the nick of time, creating a rope through his bedsheets. Now, if that's myth or not, we don't know, but the point is he was on his, on his uh, run for his life. And on the run, Calvin fled to Basel, Switzerland, for a short period, approximately two years, where he published his first edition of what is known as the Institute of Christian Religion. You think of books in history that have, have shaped the course of history, this is one of them. You may not realize it, but it has shaped you, whether you realize it or not. It has shaped government, it has shaped policy, it has shaped the church in ways that you may not even realize that you just assumed well, that's just what I was taught. But this was his first edition. He's 26 years old, and he writes his first book. And this book was only the size of a, of a pocketbook, so it could fit into your cloak. And why did he do that? Because he wanted it easily concealed for distribution. 
It was a gospel tract in some ways. It was a means of edifying the saints in France. He's had to flee for his life, and he's wanting people to come to faith in Christ, hear the true gospel, and he's written this little book, a little pamphlet that he has he's made it in a particular way so it can be distributed secretly. And so people can have it in their pocket and they can read. Calvin actually dedicated the book in his preface to Francis I, actually hoping to convince him that the Protestants were defenders of the true gospel and that he would stop fighting against the Lord and the true church. This wasn't a, 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 a polemical type of writing. It was a true appeal. I read it actually yesterday. And I was just struck by, I wonder if we would engage our politicians this way with care and class and say, and I pray as Almighty Father has uh, uh, appointed you that you would judge and rule France in righteousness. Even though he had great disagreement with him. Saw him an enemy of the faith. He was praying for him and encouraging him. It was Calvin's intention this book would serve as a guide for the Christians to learn what following Christ truly entails. And so the Institute's uh, original edition uh, had six chapters. Here's what the chapters were. A chapter on the Ten Commandments, a chapter on the Apostles' Creed, a chapter on the Lord's Prayer, a chapter on Lord's Supper and Baptism, a chapter on the false sacraments of the Catholic Church, and then a chapter on Christian freedom and government. Those aren't the type of tracts we send out today, but that was what people were wondering about, and he wrote to it. And the book was wildly successful beyond his, his dreams. He really didn't re- think much would come to it. But yet it was a success, and it propagated everywhere throughout Europe. And so after this short stint in Basel, Calvin thought to himself, maybe I can go back to France. He was going to go to Strasbourg, not Paris, in order that he could devote his life to study God's Word and to writing. His heart, get this, his heart was to win his country for Christ. That was what he was wanting to do. He was willing to risk his life to go back into the country where he's a marked man so that he could write and appeal to the Christians and those who do not know him. However, on his journey to Strasbourg, he was detoured into Geneva, Switzerland where he had only planned really to stay one night and then get on his way. But it was that one night that would change the course of Calvin's life forever. He had other plans, but God had a plan for his life. And on that night, he met a fiery man named, by the name of William Farrell. Farrell had read the Institutes. Calvin began to have a name for himself just by this one work. And Farrell had been working to bring reform in Geneva. And, and lo and behold, Calvin stays the night in Geneva. Well, Farrell says, I got one shot to convince him to stay. And so he pled with Calvin. Farrell is 48 years old. He's 20 years older than Calvin. And I think about some of our young interns who are in this same age and how uh, if an older man comes and sits them down and talks to them, there's a little fear and trepidation. So keep that in mind. And so Calvin recalls this encounter. You can read it up on the screen. Farrell proceeded to utter an imprecation. That's a curse that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so great. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. I mean, just imagine, 
Oh, what are you going to do, Calvin? Well, actually, I look forward to going to Strasbourg. I'm going to build a library, and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to study for the rest of my life, and I'm going to relax out of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the eyes of, of France, and I'm going to just write for the church. No, you're not, because if you do, I'm going to pray that God would curse your efforts. Come here and help me plant this church or work in this church. <gasps> Farrell had struck the fear of God in Calvin and convinced the young 27-year-old he needed to stay in Geneva. While the city of Geneva had officially become Protestant, this was mainly due to political reasons. So uh, our understanding of church and state is, is a great separation. These things are intertwined in Europe at this time. And so political uh, moves are made, but that doesn't mean the heart of the people have changed. And so in a real sense, while the church would have been Protestant, would have been, they would have said Reformed, the people still would have been functionally Catholic. And this meant the people did not like Calvin. Calvin not only was coming to preach, but he was, he was a Frenchman. And, and, and just think about the, the, uh, uh, the things that go on today about immigration, the, the hotness about it. Well, the same thing was happening in Geneva. All, all along, Geneva is about a ten to 13,000 person town. When Calvin arrives over the span of his life, it grows by 10,000 because French refugees like Calvin follow him. And guess what? They're not citizens and they're mooching off the society as everybody else is. At least that's the, the mind of the Genevans, the Swiss at this time. So they can't stand Calvin. I wonder what would happen if someone from uh, across the border fleeing for the life came and became your pastor. Just imagine, ooh, all the political implications. So he comes, and this is what Bruce Gordon writes in his biography. Calvin uh, was a very zealous preacher. He's 27. He's young. He's never pastored in his life. He's just had an encounter one night in Geneva. And so he comes in, guns a-blazing. He's going to change everything. He's going to fix it. And this is what Bruce Gordon writes in his biography. Again, it's in the library highlight. Calvin presented the council. So there's a council in the city. Calvin presented the council the articles concerning the organization of the church, outlining the implementation of regular celebration of the Lord's Supper, excommunication, the instruction of youth through catechism, singing and worship, and the replacement of the Roman marriage laws. The Lord's Supper was to be practiced every Sunday, defended by excommunication against unworthy participation. Now, some of these were like, hey, that's not that big of a deal. Singing, what's the big deal? He wanted to start a youth ministry. Goodness gracious, what's wrong with these people? Oh, he was just going to have the Lord's Supper. Well, all these things were not happening. And when you have no separation between church and state, everybody in the city is a member of your church. And they don't just warn you. Uh, I've looked at some of these letters and how the Lord's Supper goes. I don't think Gary's going to do this today when he leads us in the Lord's Supper. But they would list the names of the known uh, sinners in town who were not allowed to be here today. And that was a big problem, especially when you were a ruler of the city and one of the wealthy people. In fact, he had notes uh, that were left on the pulpit sometimes. There was one prominent uh, couple who were having marriage troubles. And he, Calvin shows up to church one Sunday. There's a note on the pulpit that says, if you bring up this matter, we will kill you. <laughs> so needless to say, Calvin was not warmly received. 
And guess what? Calvin was out after two years. Sounds a lot like what sometimes happens. They push too hard and out. He's banned from preaching by law, and actually he ignored that ban, and then he had to run for his life again. And so despite this flop, Calvin in those two years was able to do two things that were important. He was able to implement a new confession of faith, which if you want to know, where does the Baptist faith message the lineage that comes from it? Westminster Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, Philadelphia Baptist Confession of Faith, and you've you got them. I, I don't have them all memorized, but there's a line. Calvin wrote a confession of faith, and then he also implemented the catechism for the youth, the, the memory verses in the, in the Bible uh, question and answer. He was able to get that done. It's now 1538, and Calvin had found his way back to Strasbourg. And there's a sense in which no one was happier than Calvin that he got to leave Geneva. Finally, I've, I've done what the Lord asked. I'm kicked out. I can go back to Strasbourg. But what he didn't realize is there was an older, wiser gentleman named Martin Bootser who was waiting for him. And when Bootser heard about what Calvin uh, wanted to do, uh, Bootser told him, you were just like Jonah running from Nineveh. Bootser was 18 years older than Calvin, and he was a veteran German reformer who had also fled from his life, having been excommunicated by the Catholic Church. And he had arrived in Strasbourg some years before uh, to help with the reform and the work of the church there. And Bruce Gordon writes this about uh, uh, Bootser's investment in Calvin. He took Calvin under his wing to teach him how to be a pastor. But his purpose was primarily, gets this, for missions. He saw in Calvin a missionary. He trained him to be a pastor, but his purpose was primarily for missions. Calvin was to return to Geneva and resume his work. Bootser possessed a clearer sense of Calvin's future than did the young Frenchman. And so for three years, Calvin stays in Strasbourg under the tutelage of Martin Bootser to be trained to be a pastor. He ends up pastoring a, 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 a French refugee church in Strasbourg. And there he honed his knack for, for preaching, shepherding, and leading the church and implementing the things that he wanted to, to put in there. And in particular, one of the things that he did was the worship in the church. You may not realize, but before the Reformation, you didn't sing in church. This was all a, 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 an episode for the, the priest to perform the Mass. It was often done in Latin, not the na native tongue of the people. And so you'd come in and you would watch something be done, but you weren't a participant. Calvin implements particularly the singing of the Psalms. And here's a testimony from a refugee who visited Calvin's church. I'll have this up on the screen. Listen, this, this is sweet. Everyone sings, men and women, and it is a lovely sight. Each has his music book in hand. As I looked on this little company of exiles, I wept, not for sadness, but for joy to hear them all singing so heartily. And as they sang, giving thanks to God that he had led them to a place where his name is glorified. That's precious. Don't underestimate, brothers and sisters, the power and witness of our singing on a Sunday morning. In fact, that is one of the comments that I've received over the last six months or so from guests who have come in and people who have visited saying, everyone sings. And they clearly love the Lord. What a powerful testimony. And that's what was going on. 
Calvin also became a teacher at the local academy. He lectured through the Gospels and the Pauline Epistles. He wrote a second edition of his Institutes. I think he had, he had several of them. We have the latest, which is um, two massive volumes. It turned out not to be just a little pocketbook. It became to be a tome we'll talk about. But he wrote a second edition. He completed a commentary on the book of Romans. This was probably the time of Calvin's life. Everything was good. The church loved him. He's able to work on the things that he's wanting to work on. And he also became quite the church statesman, working with other reformers throughout Europe, corresponding with Martin Luther, uh, Heinrich Bullinger, and, and Ulrich Zwingli, working to how do we bring this movement under uh, of a unity and confession of faith? And even how, how, could we, they, how could we even bring unity amongst the Catholics? Their, their goal was not to break out. Their, their goal was to reform the one church. But they were forced out. But perhaps Calvin's greatest achievement was finding a wife who would marry him. And he did just that. He married a widow of an Anabaptist named Adela de Bure. And she brought with her two children, and they had one child of their own. However, this child was born premature and died in infancy. And we we get a little glimpse into both the grief and the, the faith of Calvin when he, he expresses this in a letter he wrote to one of his friends. We can put this on the screen. Certainly the Lord has afflicted us with a deep and painful wound in the death of our beloved son. But he is our father. He knows what is best for his children. I mean, you can hear that. And yet there's a sense in which he knows what Jesus taught. Um, seek first the kingdom, his righteousness. You who are evil know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father is in heaven. And, and yet he trusts it even through the pain of losing his own child. Therefore, the time spent in Strasbourg really served Calvin. It was a great school for Calvin where God prepared him to learn how to pastor God's people. Maybe today things aren't going the way that you planned. Maybe you thought you wouldn't still be in Jeffersonville, Indiana. You'd be doing bigger and better things. Maybe you're eager to be pastoring somewhere and you're like, I'm stuck in seminary or I'm here. I can't get the break that I'm looking for. Or maybe you're going through great trial in a season of life and you feel like I can't do anything, Lord, that I feel like I need to be doing because of this. Will you take this thorn away from me? And yet the Lord may be using this. He is using it for your good and your sanctification, but maybe be using it to train you for something else that he has intended for you. Have you ever considered that all your plans and dreams aren't his? Have you ever thought about that? And maybe the reason, not saying it is, but maybe the reason that you just find yourself spinning your wheels is because have you asked his will to be done, not your will to be done? And God in his great kindness, and I think if we look at our own lives, we can see where, where I was going one way and God, God used my poor decisions to actually shape me for another season, a different place, a different purpose, something that I had not even realized. Well, after three years there, guess what? Geneva came calling again. It's September 13th, 1541 now. This is Calvin's ministry. This time around, Calvin was better fit to uh, be used by God in Geneva. 
Calvin came in with a new plan. He was still ambitious. He was still a bear to deal with. But his plan was received. He had a little bit better knack in getting these things through. And this time he calls it the ecclesiastical ordinances. And what we would call this is a new constitution, bylaws, all those things that have happened here. But for Calvin, this new installment meant there were offices installed of pastors, doctors. Now, those aren't medical doctors. They're teachers. They were the ones who were going to train pastors, um, elders, and deacons. And these leaders would be installed within the community and the church to guide the church in terms of its doctrine, its education, discipline, and social welfare. Now, it's the first day that Calvin's back in the pulpit. It's been three years, and there was a sense of anticipation as to what is going to happen. Now, they weren't particularly excited about Calvin coming back. He'll say elsewhere, hey, it was worse than it was before than what I experienced. But you can imagine the church being rather packed. What is going to happen? The pastor that we managed to get rid of is now back three years later. What's he going to say? When Calvin gets up in the pulpit, this is remarkable. Calvin gets up in the pulpit, and we don't know what passage he opened up to, but it was the next verse that he left off from the three years prior. <laughs> so imagine, sometimes we take the summer off, and I'm like, hey, we're going to conclude uh, with chapter 7 when we get back from the summer. Well, this is three years later. It gives you a little sense of his stubbornness, maybe. But it also communicated something sweet about Calvin. He understood him as a man who's come to preach God's word and nothing else. And his steadfastness to communicate God's word is exemplified here. What the people need is what I was giving them before I left. And you still need it. You need God's word. And so we're going to pick up where we left off. And for the next 23 years, and I'm going to summarize Calvin's life here, 23 years he labored in Geneva. Pastors don't labor very long anymore. For 23 years, Calvin labored in preaching. Now, listen to this. Tell me if you want to sign up for this. He preached twice on Sundays, morning and evening, and on alternate weeks, every day of the week, okay? So church, every other week, you got every day. He wrote more than most of us will ever read. In his final edition of the Institutes, which you'll find in the library highlight, the Institutes of the, uh, were, served as a theology for the church and even those who would particularly train for ministry. It was just over 1,500 pages. He wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible, minus just a handful that he didn't get to. He wrote numerous tracts. He wrote letters to, to his friends. He wrote uh, uh, letters to rulers throughout Europe, appealing them to the gospel. He wrote letters to his friends. He even wrote letters to his enemies, appealing them to come to faith in Christ. He wrote liturgies and instructional material for his church. Added to that, Calvin started a publishing house in Geneva, all so that they could propagate the gospel. And not only did he, did he print, obviously, his own writings, but he printed translations of the Bible and Psalters. Psalters were hymnals, but they were songs built out of the Psalms. And it's estimated that Calvin printed 100,000 words a year between 1550 and 1564, and that was just Calvin's work. Calvin also created a college, an academy in Geneva, 
This school consisted in two parts. This was, uh, the first part was a Latin school, what we might think of elementary school. It's for the children. He understood, and Spurgeon was the same way, understood that we must reach the next generation with, with the truth. We must educate them. Church has always been educating the children. Started this Latin school for children. Then there was an upper school, which was essentially a seminary to train, get this, church planters and missionaries. Michael Reeves, historical theologian, wrote this about Calvin's school. It's not on the screen. Calvin quite deliberately turned Geneva into an international center for the propagation of the gospel. He advised Protestant rulers from Scotland to Italy, trained refugees who came to Geneva, and then returned to their native countries and dispatched missionaries to Poland, Hungary, Netherlands, Italy, even South America. This training center later became known as Calvin's School of Death. And you say, ooh, that's not a motto that you want to, to draw students to your school. We want something more like trusted for truth, Right? I guess you all haven't heard Southern's new motto. Anyway, Calvin's school of death. Now, why was it called that? It's not because of the rigor of the school, although I'm sure it was rigorous. It was because nearly everyone who left that school ended up being killed as they took the gospel to the nations. And they kept coming. John Knox said it was the most perfect school of Christ and we'll learn about John Knox maybe next year in two years. He took the gospel to Scotland. Calvin died at the young age of 54. He literally worked himself to death. And knowing the end was near, ministers and friends gathered around his bed and he reflected on his life. And this is what he said. We have this up on the screen. This is long, but this is what we'll conclude. When I first came here, that's Geneva, There was almost no organization. The gospel was preached, and that is all. That's a good testimony. Everything was in upheaval. I have lived through many marvelous conflicts. I have been greeted in mockery in the evening before my own door with 50 or 60 shots. Those aren't guns. That's meaning hurling hecklers, saying 50 or 60 crude things to him. You may imagine how this affected a poor, timid scholar such as I am. And I confess, always have been. Then I was hunted out of town, and on my return from Strasbourg, I had as great difficulty as before performing my office. People set their dogs on me, which caught by my robe and my legs. And he looks at these men who've trained. He says, so it will be with you, my brother, for you are in the midst of a perverse and unhappy people. But take courage and fortify yourselves, for God will make use of this church and maintain and preserve it. I have had many failings with which you have had to put up, and all I have done is worth nothing. The wicked will lay hold of this saying, but I repeat that all I have done is of no worth, and that I am a miserable creature. This, however, I can say. I have wished to do good, and my failings have always displeased me, and the fear of God has been rooted in my heart. So that you can say that my intention has been good, And I pray that the evil may be pardoned me, and if there has been anything good, that you will conform to it and follow it. Concerning my doctrine, I have taught faithfully, and God has given me the grace to write. I have done this as faithfully as possible and have not corrupted a single passage of Scripture, nor knowingly twisted it. When I have been tempted to subtlety, that's speculation, 
I have withstood the temptation and always studied for simplicity just to give you just the, the heart of the word. That's what he's getting after. I've never written anything from hatred of anyone, but I have always faithfully set before me what I deem to be the glory of God. May that be our testimony. His friends wrapped him up in a shroud, laid him in a wooden coffin, and placed him in an unmarked grave as he had requested. He wanted no fanfare. He wanted nothing except to be remembered or be forgotten for in all reality, but to stand for the glory of God. So at this time, we're going to remember the Lord and the sacrifice for us. I'm going to ask Pastor Gary to come up and we're going to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, something that many have fought for and lost their lives to hear the things that we hear and take for granted every month when we take the Lord's Supper. But our dear brother Gary is going to lead us in a time of worship in the Lord's Supper. Come. The Lord's Supper is uh, one of two ordinances given to the church by the Lord Jesus, the other being baptism. And when we come to the Lord's table, 